Hello and welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things relating to your wellbeing, including interviews with experts in the fields of nutrition, physical and mental health, and my five-minute food facts series. I am Amanda Hayes, your host, a nutritionist with a passion for well-being. Before I introduce today's guest, I will take a moment to let you know that you can subscribe to my podcast on YouTube, hit the red subscribe button, or on your favourite podcast app, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. I will also mention that although I will often be speaking with experts, any information or advice provided on Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast is not intended to be used to treat, cure or prevent injuries or medical conditions and is not a substitute for advice from your own health professional. Today I am here with Dr Scott Cousins. Scott has the great honour of being the first guest to appear twice on Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast. As you may recall from episode 11, Scott works at the University of South Australia in the School of Psychology, Social Work and Social Policy. He is an expert on sleep and his area of specialty includes electroencephalography, more commonly known as EEG, sleep and child health and the interrelationship between the latter two. Scott has published numerous papers on the topic in peer-reviewed journals. Another area of Scott's expertise is children and nature play, and that is the topic of our discussion today. To set the scene for this discussion, I just want to mention that child mental illness is increasing in Australia. Today, one in seven children between the ages of zero and 14 years experience mental illness, mainly depressive disorders, and the incidence increases in adolescence. One of the problems with this statistic is that childhood mental illness is a strong predictor of adult mental illness. So finding ways to combat mental illness in childhood is plainly important. In relation to mental health, resilience is significant because it is a preventative factor in ensuring mental well-being. Resilience is defined as a positive adaption and increased ability to cope with stress and hardship. Factors that promote resilience in children include supportive parental attachments, good health, female gender, intelligence and social competence. So social competence is having strong connections with family, peers and community, being empathetic, caring, having good communication skills and being able to manage emotions. Some of the traditional mediators of resilience, in other words, Things that can impact resilience include family violence, divorce if there was conflict and or violence involved, poverty, male gender and low social competence. Obviously these would impact it in a negative way. So given that we can't always change children's circumstances or their home environments, scientists are looking beyond the traditional mediators to other factors that can influence resilience. And that is essentially the topic of today's discussion, how nature-based play and learning can positively influence resilience in children. Studies in Europe and the UK support this, but it is a relatively new concept in Australia. 
Forest schools in Sweden were developed in the 1950s. They described themselves as an inspirational environment offering children opportunities to increase confidence through applied learning in nature. Hi, Scott, and welcome to the podcast. Yeah. G'day. Thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure. You're the first one to come on twice. So what does that say? (laughs) Best guest? (laughs) I work close by. (laughs) Uh, So as I mentioned in the introduction, today we are talking about nature play and children and the impact that can have on resilience. Scott, I'd like to start with a general question. What are some of the positive impacts associated with being in nature for anyone, not not just children? Okay, so some of the... um, It pretty much... Uh, covers everything like the reported benefits um so uh, general physical health mental health uh socialization um uh, improved reported well-being as well as uh you know sort of more objective measurements Mm. so it really covers the whole suite of it yeah Uh, pretty much anything you can think of regarding health has been reported to be of uh to be benefited by being Spending time in nature, spending time um, in green settings, in natural settings, or or not just nature, but less structured environments, or just being outdoors, just experiencing hot and cold and um, things like that. And so uh, we get lots of reports, a lot of people very keen to promote it, and our research groups also interested in this but we're Mm. trying to find the evidence behind it yeah i think it's something that people instinctively know because you know you do feel better very logical it does but i guess it's also good to get the actual scientific evidence underpinning that as well yes um a lot of things that are common sense uh people remember just simply aren't the case (laughs) and uh, so you know, we need to check these things. And there is no doubt that there's some benefit. Mm-hmm. But some of this is is uh, the interest in it is driven by a sort of ideology and uh, nostalgia and yeah. stuff. So our group tries to find, you know, what, what what's the real um, benefits and yeah. what might be the mechanism so that we can practically introduce this into mm-hmm. the lives. Because people aren't just going to you know, en masse move outside and just <laughs> abandon our houses, you know, for health benefits, then it probably wouldn't, it would create its own problems. So, it's, mm. uh, so we're trying to take the bits that uh, show real promise. And if we relate that to children, if we apply it to preschool age children, um, studies have shown that um, unstructured and creative play in nature allows children to develop social competence like teamwork skills and expressing emotions what what is unstructured creative play in nature okay so um, in a way the unstructured creative play is an ideal state it's mm-hmm. like that you you want the child to use their imagination to um, to not be... Uh, directed by an adult um, to not be prescribed what they can do mm-hmm. by the uh, environment either. So, like, uh, you know, like, for example, a swing, it doesn't have what they call many affordances. You can swing back and forwards on it. You might sit yeah. on it slightly differently, but there's not much you can really not, you know, I mean, of course, if you use your imagination, there's a lot of things you can do, yeah. but it limit it structurally limits the child, whereas... Um, 
you know, like uh, the if they have, um, you know, some sticks and a tree to climb tree? and, mm-hmm. you know, like a river to play in or something, or maybe not a river, a, <laughs> a creek to play in, um, you know, uh, their imagination can form more of the game. Right. But, of course, uh, like I said, it's an idealised um, concept and what the people always try and get is less interference. Mm-hmm. But um, there's always a trade-off, you know, the less you input uh the less directed the child is and the more they use their imagination but a small amount of input could drive them and just give them that little bit of direction that they need to make those those conceptual leaps and things that would be helpful for learning so um everyone in the field seems to have a slightly different idea of what unstructured play is but it's you know the basic concept is that it's not controlled by adults and technology that's the the sort of core so it it sounds like it's really encouraging children to use their imaginations absolutely yeah but it um there is also a a component of um children interacting with other children yeah and not um being told what to do by uh, adults or by uh curriculums by you know uh being restricted by things right and is that and what what are the positive impacts of that type of unstructured play well um the just the use of imagination Mm -hmm. um it is thought that that is can lead to um what's called um well it's not called resilience it leads to resilience through the building of Mm self-efficacy so in psychology you have this idea of that if you believe in yourself and you learn the skills within yourself that you can make an impact on the world that you can go out there and do something and you have an impact you have a a positive Mm -hmm. impact on your own life that you will continue to do this and you learn these skills and so um the unstructured play gives the child the ability to believe in themselves right. and build resilience and then at the same time they're, they're learning if children are unstructuredly playing together they're mm-hmm. negotiating the outcome of that game they're negotiating the game they're learning these basic social skills they're basically imitating society yeah. in a microcosm and learning how to get along with one another learning how to continue playing because normally the the true benefit of unstructured play is that kids want to keep doing it they don't want to stop yeah and if you don't want to stop it means that you have to negotiate your way through this this is why we want to keep adults out of it because otherwise they're prescribing these things and jumping in and stopping you know you might be hurt or you might um you know don't pick on that kid whereas they if you let them sort it out for themselves to an extent of course Mm. there's another ideal situation which uh doesn't transcribe perfectly to reality because you do need to step in at certain Well, you don't points. want them to hurt themselves, I guess. No, well, uh, there's a well-known um, concept in this area and you have a, a difference between learning injuries mm-hmm. and catastrophic injuries, <laughs> right? You don't want the catastrophic injuries. No, no, you I want the think. learning injuries. Mm. You want someone falls down, they learn how to get back up. Yeah, I mean, stub their toe or something like that. Stub their toe, they mm. learn how to go on, they um, scratch themselves on getting through a shrub they learn you know to do things you know Mm. go in backwards to protect your face that sort of thing you know you learn skills and it's the same with the socializing you learn skills and 
this has been found to be a very good way of learning skills is by doing this is basically how our mm. minds work is you do it uh, children do not learn by as everyone with children knows you say don't do that thing <laughs> and i was just talking to my little one this morning about jumping on the couch and i said i tell you not to do it but you keep doing it and she's like well i like doing it <laughs> <laughs> it's logic <laughs> So they don't learn just by being told. No, of they need not. to learn by experience. If I yeah. let her jump on it and she fell off a few times, um, then she might learn not to do it in a particular way. Yeah, I, I guess the other thing is learning, which is probably less important to children, but learning to protect your property in that you don't want her to ruin the couch and you have to buy a new one. <laughs> that would be yes, irritating. Well, we do have to buy a new one. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe that's why she's jumping all over it. She knows there's a she, new one coming. It, that is true. She, like we were talking about it. She goes, well, it doesn't matter. You're getting a new one anyway. <laughs> Smart girl. <laughs> um, so that that's really about preschool age children. The question I just asked, what about school age children? If, if it is known that... Um, playing in nature can has a have a positive impact on child resilience school seems a very obvious place to let that happen because children spend a lot of time at school obviously so there are some schools that um, are introducing interaction with nature through um, nature-based learning Did, can you tell us what what nature-based learning involves well you, uh, nature-based learning is you take that the principles of um, well, some of it's unstructured play. Mm. Like a lot of these, they like to introduce something because they're finding so many benefits yeah. of that unstructured play. They just um, give them a heap of what what's known in the field often as loose parts. You probably <laughs> might, if you've been looking into this at all, you might have come across that. Um, a lot of people, it's like instead of having everything tied down mm. and structurally in place, it's like let the kids have as many affordances as they can, as many opportunities mm -hmm. to do something as they can. So they'll give them just a sandpit, um, sticks, yeah. whatever, you know, just let them play in nature, like literally. Mm -hmm. um, that's part of the school uh, nature-based learning. And then another part is um, you still have to follow the curriculum. Yes, of to course. To a certain extent. So you need maths. So what do you do? You do counting by twos or something as part of like mm -hmm. a first year curriculum. You do counting by twos in nature. You find pairs of things and count them up and things mm. like that. So you, you basically it just transplanting a lot of that. And so that becomes, it's not ideal, but you know, we have to live in reality. We have to still follow the curriculum yeah. and people um, need to learn these skills. And so you know, that gives you an opportunity to get those added benefits of nature while still um, applying yeah. it. And some things are better applied out of the classroom. So imagine mm. learning about the weather. You can see pictures of the weather. Yeah. Well, you could just go and experience yeah. the weather. Yeah, that's true. You know, like you could see pictures of cloud types or you could go and look at cloud mm. types, you know, like so sometimes the nature part of it adds directly mm. to the learning and then sometimes it's just a bonus that yes. you're outdoors, you're moving around, yeah. and you're still getting your maths learning. You still you do and yeah. all that socialising again, um, but also negotiating risks, managing the risk. That's a big part of child development at that age. Yes. It's like working out what's risky, working out your own levels, mm. and so um, that's that's a real bonus into the learning. Yeah. Well, I read when I was uh, doing some reading about the forest schools in Sweden. 
one of the ways they use nature is to learn the alphabet outside so look for things shaped like you know letter a letter b letter c etc so yeah. i thought that was quite an ingenious way yes yeah, so certainly more fun um, some some of the people see that as too prescriptive okay as for a nature-based right. learning um but i think again you just you know everyone has a slightly different idea but as long as we're getting the kids outside mm. at least it's better than just sitting around sitting around yeah and i know there's been research about boys in particular learning better when they're actually moving yes there is um yeah. there's quite a bit of research mm. in um that like in creativity that uh, people are more creative when moving than not so mm. if you if you wanted to have a creative meeting about a project you're doing Often um, you'll find there are certain academics that will walk yeah. while they're doing it. Uh, one of the professors, he, if you want to have a meeting, it's a walking meeting. He'll yeah. walk around with you and um, and it does work. You feel it. it you, um, I don't know, it frees part yeah. of your mind that might otherwise be occupied. What are the main differences between a nature-based school and a regular school? Well, I mean, a lot of the schools now are bringing in um, a nature playground mm. so that the difference is actually starting to decrease yeah. slightly but obviously the um, standard curriculum it's quite sedentary yeah um quite technology based mm -hmm. um it's very directed from the teacher it's sort of a top-down model yeah directed from the teacher or and then the teachers being directed by the education department mm -hmm. so it's very prescriptive it's very uh top-down directed whereas nature play in its sort of purest form is much more bottom up it's driven by the students they will decide that's one of the big differences i noticed with mm. uh, upper sturt primary yeah is, that's is the, the local the bush school isn't it uh, bush in... school that we have here mm. and we're doing some work with them in, oh, a, in a research project um and um what we find there is that the teachers um tend to trust the students more and they do have um, these they still have to follow the curriculum. Yeah, so they sure. still have to, they need to, to learn meet to read certain and, mm. markers. But what they'll do is um, allow the students collectively or individually at times to decide on how they're going to get there mm -hmm. and negotiate that for themselves. And you can see that that's an, an additional skill yes. that the other students aren't learning because if you have to decide what you're doing how to reach a goal rather than being told you will reach that goal yeah. and this is how we're doing it and now do it. That's a very different it's skill. It's more passive, isn't it? Yeah. That I traditional mean, way. You still learn. And um, I mean, that's the way I learned <laughs> was, you know, yeah. very rote learning. Yeah. Um, I was probably at the end of that tradition. Although that might be the case for people our age, but we also had a lot of unstructured play in our oh, daily lives outside, i mean outside yeah. school was unstructured yeah exactly we just disappeared and yeah. went off to the local creek and caught tadpoles wow. and i you grew know. up in wyla there was no local creek <laughs> <laughs> local desert local <laughs> desert yeah I, I just remember being out all day in the yes, local I, parks I and whatnot i actually can't imagine allowing even though i'm involved in this work mm. i cannot imagine letting my child be as free range as I was oh, yeah, at same. that age, like uh, going, walking all day in the bush yeah. uh, to quarries to... Yeah, um, amazing. And no phone to say, oh, mum, no, I'm at the quarry, I'll be back at two. my age, but they didn't exist. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, same. <laughs> yeah. 
I know it's very different. So we got we got sort of I guess both aspects. We got the rote learning side of school, but we also balanced it a bit with the nature play ourselves. Yes. In your department at the University of South Australia, you have a, a girl, Jara Seeger, who's doing her or she's done her honours thesis. Is that right? Yes, it was yes. Last year. And she and that was about comparing resilience outcomes of children from a nature-based curriculum versus a standard curriculum. And the results were, in a very general sense, that children attending a nature-based school had greater resilience than their classroom-educated peers. So can you tell us a little bit about her study and the findings? Yeah, so it was mostly a, a survey-based mm-hmm. uh, study, so we basically just got the parents and the teachers to report on things like behavior and um, internalizing behaviors, you know, like whether anxious or depressed, mm-hmm. those sorts of things, as well as um, their, you know, markers of resilience and their social skills. And then we got a mock report card to see how their academic performance was mm-hmm. and um, and then measured um their exposure to nature play by having a variety of scores, but mainly Upper Sturt was the sort of index group of people exposed to a nature-based yes. curriculum. Okay. And then uh, the other schools either had none or some so they small were the amount control of control. Yeah, or, they were basically yeah. a control, but yeah. a, a variable control. But yeah. it, it seemed that the nature-based schools still showed the difference. And the idea was we were exploring the idea of the socialization aspect of um, Mm -hmm. the nature-based play because that was one of the more well-known mechanisms by which it was thought to work. Right, interesting. That you cooperate together, Mm. as I was explaining before, Mm -hmm. the the negotiating. And the problem-solving. And the problem-solving. But um, that didn't actually come out uh, as the reason, but they still showed greater resilience, which is why we've come back this year to rerun it again. Oh, interesting. And we're running it currently now with uh, a new honor student, Angela. And she is um, uh, looking at the more of the internalizing behaviors if the mechanism is more through whether they get that self-efficacy, right. whether they're the self-mastery. If you're confident in yourself, mm-hmm. you, um, you learn the skills of controlling yourself and your internal... Uh, state your mm-hmm. how you feel about yourself so that's not innate then is it that um self-efficacy it's something well, it's no, learned it is or... it is part of um is part of our maturation it's yeah. part of uh, development um it's just that it gets it can be stifled you know yeah. with too much direction yep. you can stifle self-efficacy a person doesn't and i think people that are involved in education, they can see this, Mm. that you can see people now, they're very smart children, but they don't have a lot of initiative Mm -hmm. for their own thing. They look to be told what to do, whereas... Because that's what they've learned. Yeah. These Mm. children might have a greater self-efficacy, might be more self-starting and uh, more confident in themselves. But um, those results are yet to... Shown. No. There's, there's actually not quite as much um, research, uh, good quality research that's been done in this area, unfortunately, because it's a very interesting area and yeah. it, it would be great to have and more I guess, precise answers. And I guess also to make changes in the education system, oh, yes. you, you do need the, the research backing it up. Absolutely. Um, that is going to be, I think, the next step. And that's yeah. why we're getting involved at this level 
is because uh, there's a lot of people interested in it. There's a lot of goodwill. Yeah. But unless you have hard evidence mm-hmm. and you can draw research funding and and um, yeah. that, then you know, like this, it sort of supports itself. Until you can get decent evidence, you won't get the research funding to do really good studies, and then you won't convince. Yeah government departments until you can yeah, get that not really gonna... good evidence from the really good studies, but they're expensive to do. Of course. They're not going to change the curriculum on a warm, fuzzy idea, are they? No, and no. Um, nature-based play suffers from an image problem as well Yeah, from outside of... The, I mean, the people that are within the field, they love it. They're mm. very passionate. But outside, um, a lot of people look at it and say, I don't want my kid just playing in the mud. Uh, you know, I'd yeah, rather than learning like... violin or something, you know, what, yeah. what good does playing in the mud do? Playing in the mud is amazingly beneficial. Yeah. But we need to show that with scientific, hard scientific facts. And a lot of the studies have been small, underpowered yeah. um, or observational only. We need yes. intervention studies. We need, um, so the idea of these studies that are with our, within our research group that we've been talking about is to get some pilot data to push for yeah, an intervention study right. where we actually make a change, yeah. measure the change. So these are the building blocks, I guess, for the next level of studies. Exactly. Yeah. And do you think nature play or nature-based learning is beneficial because it takes kids away from other sources of stress like social media or are the benefits independent of that? Well, I think... Um, yeah, it's both. Yeah. Um, but we don't know the mechanisms. Now, mm. there are a lot of proposed mechanisms and a lot of bits of evidence pointing in different directions. So one might be that it's fitness, you know, that you're just mm. moving around more. You're more physically active. That's good for you. And there are all the benefits that we know flow from that. Yes. Um, it could be that reduction in stress, the removal from the pressures of keeping up on social media and things like that it could be that it could be um the the green effect basically you know if you just show people pictures of a mountain or something they are less stressed Mm. they don't even need to go and be in nature they just need to be reminded of nature to feel less stressed there was a study where they got adults to climb a tree and people in a tree are less stressed than people that aren't in a tree. Ah. <laughs> I was a huge tree climber as a child. Me too. Loved it. Yeah. And um, but obvious for obvious reasons, uh, <laughs> the I don't climb a lot of trees now. I and, can't uh, lift my legs up. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, so there are lots of potential mechanisms here, but we don't really know, and that's part of exploring these. Um, yes these projects and looking at what what might be a a good mechanism to explain what's going on and then that would direct you know if it's not the socialization part but it's really just getting people into nature we can do that that's an intervention we can do we can just organize someone and we get bust the kids out and let them run around in a nature park yeah the the other benefits might be some you know it might improve immunity and things like that but i guess that's a different side of it but there is um, I think it all contributes, mm. and that is another aspect to it. Is that um, we think that we want to protect children, and that'll make them healthier. But actually, small insults 
yeah. to your body, controlled insults. It's, it's the learning mistake, uh, learning injuries rather than the catastrophic yeah. injuries that build strength. And that's that goes across physiology. So, and you know from exercise, yeah. it's not that it's fun necessarily. You sort of learn to love the pain, but it's not that it's fun. It's that it's doing you slight damage. Mm-hmm controlled damage and you your body responds to that by getting stronger and that's you improving your fitness but that works across everything if you don't get any insults to your body you don't build or your immune system and the immune system is exactly the same so you need to get your hands in the mud and there's so much now about over sterilizing yeah. the home environment and children not being exposed to these pathogens and things. And then they get, and the allergy rates are yeah. going through the roof. Cause that's the other thing that I'm fascinated by mm. is what, because the allergy rates are going through the roof. I didn't know anyone when I was a child that had any kind of allergy. It was rare. And, but so it, it obviously hasn't been a genetic change. It's no. been something we've done in our environment. And what exactly is that? And there are theories. The over-sterilization theory is one. Well, it, um, it, to me, it makes sense because yeah. from a physiology background, that's my undergraduate mm. background, um, you need small amounts mm. of physical damage. You need yeah. to put yourself at risk. And this is mentally, mm. physically, not catastrophic risk, yeah. but enough to push you to grow. And so we we see that, um, and that's that's a very likely mechanism for the benefits from my perspective. But of course, we need to to prove that in in a, or at least demonstrate it more substantially. Childhood has has changed a lot, I think, in the last several decades. And one of the things I wonder about is we do we do expose our children to nature, but sometimes it's in a very structured way rather than an unstructured way. And that could be they're playing sport on a, you know, grassy oval or whatever, surrounded by trees. Do you think that we overstructure our children these days? It does appear so. Yeah. I mean, Um, I guess everyone's different. um, I have a a 26 year old child and a 19 year old and a six year old. (laughs) So I have sort of lived through the various changes and, this, that is one of the things that I've noticed. These, yeah. My first one, uh, she's a bit of a tomboy, if that's an allowable term. <laughs> <laughs> and she uh, was allowed to play more on her own yeah. with other children out in the street, that sort of thing. And then the the, the middle one was less so. And now our latest one, she, you know, we've sort of been hovering a fair bit and yeah. but we're trying to move back from that because of coming into this field over the last few years yeah, and trying to learn from what's what's happening but yeah. it's hard to break even when you know what's beneficial it's hard to break those habits and it's hard to weigh up the risks and benefits when it's your own child it's easy for me to say we need to allow children to be more risky but I often won't let Maddie go out the front on her own and, you know, like, uh, you know, yeah. I've got to look, uh, absorb my own lessons. <laughs> yeah, it, you're right, though. It is hard when it comes to your own children. I mean, it's the same with, uh, in my case, nutrition. Sometimes they eat things I know they shouldn't eat, but, you know, we can't be perfect. <laughs> exactly. And so in, we have mentioned briefly in South Australia, the Upper Sturt Primary School is the first bush school. So that's great. 
Um, I wonder if there are any others that you know of around Australia. Uh, there are um, yeah, yeah. In, across Australia. That mm. I don't. I can't remember their names. No, that, that's fine. Uh, so there are some. Yes, there's yeah. a few, um, and they're not all the same. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them, like I was saying before, they'll um, introduce a, a nature component, or like Upper Sturt is pure. You know, it's, it's very dedicated to the ideal. Um, but there are others that um, are still in an urban environment, but mm -hmm. but try and use a nature when they can uh, nature-based curriculum when they can um but it isn't where they're situated so you you yeah. get a whole range um and which is very helpful from a yeah. research point of view because we can look yeah, at exactly. the degree of exposure and then what happens with the children mm. and so what are apart from the need to have solid scientific evidence what do you think are some of the other barriers for establishing more of the uh, forest or bush style schools well, one is access to nature. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, you know, pretty readily chop everything yeah. down that we can. And, um, and you know, the av vast majority of children live in urban mm. environments. Um, and so we don't have the ease of access yep. to nature. But, I mean, compared to some other places in the world, we have very oh, good access. Compared with Hong Kong, for example. Yeah. I mean, mm. Adelaide, you drive for 20 minutes and you're in bushland mm. you know it's it's not untouched by any means but it is much more on the nature side than you know rundle mall and uh, so uh you know we we have access but it's it it's that sort of difficulty of finding good mm. environments but also like i said it, there's an image problem yeah and we don't see the benefits necessarily and um people worry that if they allow their children to just unstructured play instead of directing them to, like I said, you know, learn some skill or, mm. um, you know, they will fall behind. And it's possible in some respects that they will fall behind in those skills, but then they may learn other more useful skills. And yeah. that's what we're trying to find if that's mm. true. And if it's, um, if you can do an intervention and that change yeah. sticks. And it's harder to measure those other skills in a way isn't it like self-efficacy well, and but, things like I mean, that it's becoming less so because um the rates of uh especially teenage anxiety and depression is huge in yeah, australia it and, is. and growing all the time just mm. um skyrocketing really and um and we need to do something about that and yeah. this is something that's shown that it can potentially impact in a beneficial way yeah and so we need to take that fairly seriously i think yeah um, it, it's not it's not uh necessarily seen so easily in marks but if you think of well-being in general yeah. then it's really um it is a measurable and noticeable impact with my final question i usually ask scott's already answered that on episode 11 so i have another question for you what's your next physical challenge <laughs> given um, th this is an iron man i'm talking to here <laughs> okay so the plan is that i'm going to do the the six day event coming up around Thornton Park. Oh, what's that? So you basically just run in a small circle for six days. <laughs> that sounds horrific. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a challenge. <laughs> yeah. So, no, you, you must sleep, surely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. you can't you, be you awake sort of, for six, uh, hours, no, six no, days. Yeah. No, no. Um, you camp there. I mean, the very dedicated runners 
might only sleep a few hours a night oh and just goodness. run hundreds and hundreds of kilometers over the time. But I'm less dedicated <laughs> and will sleep as much as I need and um, have to go off at times, no doubt, to yeah. do things like pick my kid up from school or go to the... Oh, so you can come and go from yes, this event. But, um, mm. I mean, I think it's a bit frowned upon that you shouldn't really... <laughs> you're allowed to, but it's it's not the yeah. uh, purest intention to, mm. to do Still that. Still pretty amazing. Six days. Well, I've done the 24-hour one. Yeah. And normally, I think you probably should go like a 48-hour one, but I just thought it'll go the next step. <laughs> that I seems to be up... your approach, doesn't yeah. it? Like, <laughs> don't don't go halfway. Just do the full thing. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> yeah, oh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> but, I mean, we'll see. I might yeah. check it out uh, just before and, and cut my time down. <laughs> <laughs> when, when is that? Uh, it's in early October. Early October. Wow. Oh, well, good luck with that, Scott. And thank you for coming on today. That's been my pleasure. And that was Dr. Scott Cousins, neuroscientist, sleep expert, and nature play expert. You can subscribe to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button, and while you're there, click on the bell to be alerted when new episodes are available. You can also subscribe on your favourite podcast app, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Direct links to all social media can be found on the subscribe page of my website at www.amandaswellbeingpodcast.com. If you would like to contact me, you can send me a message via the contacts page on my website. Please feel free to suggest topics you'd like to learn more about and people you'd like to hear interviewed and I'll do my best to deliver that to you. Producing the podcast is a labour of love. We put a lot of time, money and effort in behind the scenes. So if you enjoy Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast and would like to make a contribution via Patreon, PayPal or by Amazon to help ensure we continue to provide you with excellent content, please visit the Contribute page on my website. Finally, please take a minute to leave a rating on iTunes. It improves visibility and will help me source excellent guests. Thank you for tuning in. Eat well, move well, think well.